back to part two of three of 52 Founders in London. I'm your host, Chrissy Casa, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Anish Varma, co-founder and CEO of AIR, the next-generation credit scoring startup. AIR utilizes machine learning technology to calculate more reliable credit scores, which is particularly useful for those who may be denied by more traditional methods. It was great to sit down with Anish to learn more about his own childhood leading a transient life and to hear more about where the startup scene is headed in London. But enough for me, it's time to hear from Anish himself. So what were you doing before AIR, and how did you come up with it? So I guess uh, somebody told me once that you can never really hold an honest job down, in sort of reference to me. So I've been doing startups almost for 10 years now. Um, I did have a short stint um, at a large bank working in New York and London for only about two and a half years, but majority of my professional life has really mm-hmm. been running companies and sort of building companies, which... I guess it's its own science and art. Um, I love it. I, I read and research a lot about what, what, how do you create a company and what is the genesis of a, a company. And it's, it's a fascinating topic for a separate conversation, perhaps. Yeah. So what is AIR? So AIR started with this uh, thesis, which was something I also sort of went through myself, which I believe that the world we live in is going to change so dramatically in terms of how we work, how we think about professional mobility, personal mobility. Um, you know, I've uh, been a migrant in many ways to the UK, so I came here 10 years ago. But I think people are going to move around a lot for work, for professional reasons, personal reasons. And financial services wasn't designed for that kind of mobility, right? If you think about the majority of the uh, decisioning tools and the data that they kind of leverage, it still sort of reflects the world of the 50s or 60s where, you know, you kind of lived in the same 40-mile radius where you were born and you kind of had the same job for 14, 15 mm-hmm. years, and you kind of had your perfect 2.1 kids. Yeah. Um, that's not a reality anymore, and the, the new world really looks a lot different, where there's founders, entrepreneurs, self-employed, contractors, people moving jobs, people moving uh, countries for jobs. Um, right. And who is building sort of financial services for them? But more importantly, who's going back and looking at the very bedrock of the plumbing that happens? Uh, things like your FICO score, things like your credit score, how do you kind of rethink all these in this sort of new world reality? Um, and that's really been the journey for AIR. How do you build a new credit score, which is sort of the level one that we want to start with, mm-hmm. and then over time we'll naturally add more layers. But <laughs> this is an interesting company. We're going back to the very bedrock of uh, financial services. No, and I love that because I think that there's uh, one of my hypotheses or just one of the trends you see is the ability of the, or the tools for the transient millennial or even younger. Um, so for me, I'm, on, I'm going to be after business school, my fifth city in my 20s. Uh, and then you realize how crappy things are when you're moving around, you're trying to find, you know, even I'm worried that I probably have an outstanding jury due to, jury due to notice somewhere mm. uh, or just have sending bills. So yeah, you're right. I think after college, my credit score was terrible because I had a $20 Comcast bill I never paid two years Different city before. or something. Yeah, yeah I, mo- I moved. <laughs> I applied for my first apartment and they said, why is, why is your credit score? <laughs> So bad. It's like I don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I can I can definitely relate. Uh, so where does the name come from? 
Oh, there's a lot of genesis. I, I wanted a word which was very non-financial. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is, uh, AIR was an acronym. It was sort of when I was taking time off between my last startup and this one, this was one of my research areas. And for the longest time, I used to write it out as, uh, you know, basically a artificial intelligence risk engine, A-I-R-E. Mm-hmm. And the acronym, I kept writing it, writing it, writing it, and it eventually sort of started resonating, AIR, AIR, AIR. It's like a small non-financial word it's sort of soft it's innocuous people don't get scared with it but it can be something really powerful when yeah you think about what air means from a life and humanity perspective well and one of your credit for me i was thinking credit score gives you the ability to breathe which yeah, means yeah, yeah. There's, so there's a, lot of, a lot of people in media have kind of retrofit different like ways around it. i think somebody said it's you know what air is to life uh you know, sorry, what oxygen is to life air is to financial services <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. so one thing before we dive into your background, um, I found really interesting was that you said you've stated publicly that the problem you're solving may take 20 plus years. Um, so first of all, why do you think that is? And second of all, how does that affect fundraising when investors are hoping to see returns? You know, a, a typical fund would be seven to 10 years. So how do you tell them to invest when you're saying that it might take 20 years to solve a problem like this? Yeah, and I think this is a good point. So I talk a lot about this even with our team internally about how we think about our roadmap and our journey, right? So I do believe that some of the biggest problems that are sitting ahead of us from a tech or non-tech, just, you know, if you're building a business that's trying to solve some of these things, you've got to think outside sort of that seven, five to seven year horizon that maybe VCs operate in. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a progression path that we as entrepreneurs need to also demonstrate. How do you show value along the way? Right, so it isn't a zero to one that happens at 20 years. Mm-hmm. You're, you're making incremental progress all along the way. It's a curve you're exploring. And as you go up the curve, you're getting better and better at things, but there's ways that you can show that you've done stuff. And that's why I said at the very start, like our first attempt is to go into credit scores, which I think are an interesting block of the wider piece. Um, and then over time, there'll be more blocks that we'll be adding. But you know, with credit scores, we have now, for example, in the UK, we've become a registered credit reference authority. Now, this is the fourth time this has ever been issued, this mm-hmm. license. Um, so that took us a few years to get, but at least in the span of a few years, we were able yeah. to demonstrate we can enter the system, we can establish our foothold. Uh, I got to build on that, but that's something that at least we can demonstrate back. And it goes both ways. I think it also means that investors that we work with have to have that alignment to the kind of work we're doing, right? So, you know, we, we intersect a lot of crazy spaces. So there's AI, there's enterprise, there's data, mm-hmm. there's privacy, consumer sentiment, regulations. Um, and I think for a business that we're building, you need to understand that to correctly traverse those crossroads, you need to make sure that you're, you're building the business with that sort of patience and responsibility. So um, I think we have good investors, the VCs that are sort of supporting us, they get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they also have to operate within their own LP structure, but I think there is uh, a buy-in to that vision that we're building. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I think it's also great that you have um, that you set off on this the same page. So you're very transparent. Obviously, um, goes the theme of air. <laughs> yeah, I, I I actually have a slide I sh- I used to show to investors really early on and explaining this thing and mm-hmm. it's sort of I call it my flinch and I want to see the flinch of that because it it's important for both sides to be equally aware of what we're trying to build right. the employees, the company, uh, the investors. And I think it's. It's the only way you can build a large business for what's left, I think, from the problems to solve, right? If you're not, I think the way I describe it is if your business you, you want to build is large, you have to think about regulations and government. If you're not building something that's 
encountering those forces, mm -hmm. that means you're not playing on a canvas that's big enough. You might be doing something that's also ran or a small side project. Right. No, those are really great points. Um, and so let's dive into you now. So where did you grow up? <laughs> a bunch of different places. So much like the thesis I'm chasing, though I wasn't exactly off that, uh, my dad was a diplomat, so we moved around a lot uh, as a kid. I actually grew up in about 11 different countries. You are the second person I've talked to who's a dad was a diplomat. Oh, that's good. Yeah, out of 13 already. <laughs> so. Maybe there's a trend there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we moved around a lot. Um, lived. I was born in Japan way back. Um, wow. I moved around in Asia, South America, and sort of back to Asia. So that was sort of the two areas that we were often in. And naturally, everywhere you go, it's an international school, in many cases an American school. So I did the APs, SATs, I also did the IB, so you know, it was... So you love testing. Yeah, I mean, it's, the, it's kind of the routine you go into and then sort of that leads you to a certain number of choices you can take. Most mm -hmm. international schools are largely American schools if you sort of right. follow the drift. Do you find that that gave you some sort of adaptability? Were you able to... Do you always find that, you know, the founder I recently talked to said he was able to kind of reinvent himself or not really care what others thought and was able to have sort of an off-the-beaten-path lifestyle because it's always constantly having to adapt to new situations. Did you find that was true for you? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's the only life I've known, so I don't know what it looks like to grow up in the same... Where you know everyone your whole life. Lock, yeah. yeah, for 20 years, which I have friends who've told me that, and I, I can relate to that, and sometimes it looks more attractive, but I guess at every, for every, every school that I entered, every three years, you're trying to make new friends, you're trying to mm -hmm. break into the clique, uh, you know, understand how the system works and try to not dominate the system, but get on top of the system, right? So there's always that sort of start, restart, start, restart mindset, which maybe is what entrepreneurship is about as well to some extent. Let's see. Yeah, exactly. Um, so were you able to get any leadership roles when you were younger, given that you were all constantly moving around? Yeah, so I've always... I remember friends used to tell me, and even my mom and dad were always telling me that you... I never liked um, sort of sitting down and accepting the message as it came in. I, I always felt that it's you have to be a bit of a activist or you have to stand up for what you need. And it got me into trouble a bit in sort of the early days of high school, even high school, middle school maybe. But I've always sort of enjoyed trying to change the situation a bit. So yeah, you know, various clubs, you were the leader or the president, even in college I was the president of various things. Um, even when I was a teenager, I was a bit of an activist. I remember I used to live in Japan in my teenage years, and I, I bought um, a Panasonic uh, MD player. I don't know if you guys remember that back in the day. And, MD player. And they were uh, like the trendiest things, and I spent a lot of my pocket money on it, but it didn't quite work out, and I was really angry at Panasonic. And they're a great company, but I was just livid, and I, I was writing letters to their management and, and trying to call up helplines and saying, from a consumer perspective, I, you know, for whatever I understood as a 16-year-old consumer rights mean, I was going after them to get a repair done, to get a fix, to get a replacement. Yeah. And I guess that's part of my mindset, right? I just I don't like accepting no as an answer. I want to see why. So what happened from that? Yeah, they replaced it. They uh, did, yeah. yeah. And actually, I remember another friend of mine uh, subsequently had a problem with an MD player as well, and I told him how to do it. Um, in fact, there are a few airlines around the world which probably have me on a blacklist because I've written some pretty harsh letters <laughs> to them and got refunds out of them. But it's just, again, I, this is the world I grew up in. I, I thought, you know, if you have free voice, you should use it. Do you think, though, that's a product of having so many different cultures or is it something that you find that your parents really have? 
it's a tricky one, right? So I, I do believe there's at some stage the intermixing that happens between going across different cultures, but also sort of the mindset of what my parents came from. My mom was a journalist. Mm-hmm. My dad's a diplomat. So, you know, the, you, you grew up in a world where you have to sort of explain why you're doing X and sort of fight for the right cause or right. report or bring to surface something that has been hidden a bit underneath. Um, so I, I do have to, you know, encourage, sort of thank my parents rather for encouraging me to get into, you know, at least having a voice and not like letting me, you know, settle for something less, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as this activist child or teenager, <laughs> what were you, what were you, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you thought about it? Oh yeah, this is fun stuff, right? So I always was fascinated by this sort of concept of being in a position where you could really run the show yourself. Um, and I was lucky, again, my dad helped me like meet some really established like Japanese businessmen, again, because my teenage years were in Japan, like the founder of Sharp or the founder of Panasonic. Mm-hmm. And it was really fascinating to like learn how they, obviously in their cases, their grandfather or somebody had set up the company and was yeah. sort of being handed down, but their each generation that took over that business was sort of morphing it into something unique or uh, something that adapted to the times. And I found it exciting that they were building stuff that solved these large problems. And yeah, one would argue not everything that a tech company does is solving problems, but sometimes it is sort of profit motive. But uh, I still remember like the guy at uh, Sharp who had invented the LCD screen and the mic- uh, the microwave and all that. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's so cool. Like everybody depends on a microwave. That guy came up with it. So I like this concept of being like a, I guess, partially inventor, but somebody who actually builds something that has mm-hmm. life beyond yourself. So, so, and also you had this, I mean, especially in Japan, seems like a different culture than what we see now in London and America. Um, did you like the idea of creating products that are universal? Yeah, so the universality was really important. And I think, I remember the, I still remember this visit to the Sharp factory where it was just amazing to see like the stuff they were working on and the stuff they were working on in the 70s, like, mm-hmm. you know, which... Some of it had started materializing, some they were still researching. I was like, that's really long patience to sort of see it through. But part of maybe the Japanese culture as well, right? We want to build something that is global, the, the Toyota cars, the Honda cars. So uh, that's that's always been there. And even in my businesses, I've always sort of, one way or the other, sort of fused some Japanese philosophy. <laughs> was that where you spent the most time? Uh, most of my uh, influential time, since the, the impact that it had on mm-hmm. me, my thinking, you know, your teenage years are a big part of what you become. Um, and, you know, understanding Japanese society. I mean, it was an American school, obviously. It was an international school, I should be correct. But, you know, the influence you had from one side, which was the overseas diplomatic slash military kids who were moving around, and then the Japanese culture, which has a very different you yeah. know, technique of everything that they approach. But I think that intermix was really exciting. And I've... I've always had the fondest memories for Japan, even now. So are your parents American? You keep saying American schools, or was it where are they from? No, no, no. So they are, uh, my dad was a diplomat for India. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just everywhere you grow, it's, it's an American schools. school. Okay. Yeah. So you never had this first aha moment later in education that you were thinking of entrepreneurship. It sounded like you never dreamt of being, you know, a computer scientist, an architect, just, you know, well, uh, I was always, anything like that. Yeah, fascinated by what it meant to start a new thing. And I think even in college, you know, I went to a place called Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And I was always like, I had my hand up for like any free internship or whatever at like a startup in the local area. 
some of our professors were like advisors to a venture fund and they kind of roped me in like, hey, Anish, do you want to like spend you know, a few months working with this company? And it was cool because I got to meet founders who in many ways were a little bit more traditional about the businesses they were building. Some of yeah. them were actually like manufacturing businesses and um, you know, things which, you know, there's a lot of careful planning that goes into it. And I spent a lot of time with the founders, you know, usually being like a, a free pair of hands to do anything to everything. But it's just nice to get exposed to that environment. You're seeing how they're making decisions, how they're choosing between different uh, chops, options, dilemmas. Um, and it was, I think some of the guys in particular were good that even me as a 20, well, not even 20, I was like an 18, 19 year old kid they were willing to like share with me what they were doing, why they were doing mm. it. Um, and I think those experiences have rubbed off and a lot of things that I think about even in this company or any company, it's sort of how you think about your role as a, a leader. You know, the, the conventional thinking has always been the leader is at the top of the triangle. Mm-hmm. I, over time, have learned it's a complete flip, right? The leader is at the bottom of the triangle. You're holding it up. You're, you're in service to the rest of the team. You're, you're almost like their servant and you should think about it from that role. And it's, I find it really exciting when you think of it from that perspective because you're like, cool, I have these really great people they are doing stuff. How can I help them do more? Right? Well, only the best leaders say that in my opinion. I, but I but think I that's a great, I agree. That. That's a great analogy, honestly. The best managers I've ever had operate that way. Like, how do you make, how do you extract the best out of your employees? Um, and not from a, you know, to make the most money, but it's really to develop them as people. Um, so I really respect that you said that. So, you know, you mentioned, though, that you had a traditional job in New York. Does it feel weird to not be your own boss, or did you have any problems with that? Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. I think it was important for me to also get exposed to corporate life, learn a bit about how the, how the world of big business works, make friends, make contacts, earn some money, which was useful. Um, but I do remember I only had two bosses in my life, uh, and both of them... I've kept in touch with. In fact, both of them have also invested in my company. So it's nice that I keep that dialogue, but both mm-hmm. of them used to say, Anish, you were never made for this. Like, I, I do wish <laughs> you go do something better with your life. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was great to see that they've kept in touch. And obviously now that I am in the role I am, they're able to add value. And, you know, it's been great sort of from a relationship perspective to see mm-hmm. that same corporate relationship morph into something a bit more like a mentor and a, almost an advisor as well. So why, you know, given the financial focus of Eric and see London, but why not New York? Would you ever think about going back yeah. to the States especially? Or what are the values you be in Europe? Well, we were, um, I was really keen to look at New York as a, as a site to launch Air. Um, mm-hmm. I had, like I said, I had a year off between my last company and this one and I was really sitting down and thinking, how am I going to play the sort of game of chess that builds this company Air, right? What are the moves I'm going to make correctly? And New York was there on the agenda. Um, I spent a lot of time going back and forth. But uh, there was something about London that just clicked in the sense I'd been here for a while. I knew how the system worked. I had a, I felt that it's such a complex company to build. You want to remove the number of moving pieces. And moving to New York, even though I understood the city, would still represent a new initiation into the local ecosystem from a mm-hmm. tech startup perspective whereas London I knew the game I knew the people to some extent there was comfort there and I said let's try to keep as many things fixed as possible um, and I had this like gut intuition that I think there's going to be something interesting about how fintech evolves out of London in mm-hmm. particular how the regulators take a, a view on these companies 
And at that time, I hadn't even spoken to any regulators, but we that bet kind of paid off two, three years later when mm-hmm. you know, the regulators have been really open-minded and trying to understand how do companies in our space, which are using you know, algorithms and machine learning and you know, all these new buzzwords that people keep throwing out, but how are they using it in a, in a consumer context and the willingness for the regulator to sort of step in and understand that. Um, and I think that bet, which we took in 2014, I guess, because it's paid off, looking back, it looks like the right decision. Obviously, it can go on the other way as well. <laughs> Maybe it's in parallel universe. You'll never know. You know. Um, and so you mentioned you had a previous company, Fabric Fabricate. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and so, what do you find that you're doing differently this time around? I just met somebody who um, was telling me that most founders, you're always only running one company they just call it different things <laughs> that's really funny and all you're doing is fixing mistakes of the last one which i think is, is true you know we had a we had a good company i was really young when i started that one i was 24 um, i didn't really have the maturity of what it means to build a company so mm-hmm. we took a lot of shortcuts we didn't have uh, we never thought about the f- investment into the foundation of the business right so people hiring you know how do you think about culture how do you think about what company's journey is going to be how do you communicate better within the company all those sort of moving pieces which are really important, especially not when you're like five or six people, but when you're 40, 45, 50 people. And obviously now there's so much knowledge about this, there's blogs and books about it. Mm-hmm. But back then there was very little. So I kind of had to learn about it through my own experiences. And at AIR, it's, it's kind of like, how do we not make every single mistake that we did before? <laughs> and I'm so conscious about it. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. I think we, we spent a lot of time building the right foundations mm-hmm. and I can... I mean, it's early days, but I can already see it, you know, paying the benefits that we hoped mm-hmm. it would. Um, but foundations, I think, is the biggest. And if there's any young entrepreneur listening to this, foundations, I cannot em- emphasize how important that is. Because if you build a complex company, complexity is only going to grow at the top. So if your foundations are weak, if you don't know what the company stands for, your ethics, your uh, purpose, your, you know, the way you want your company to make decisions, where you want your people to make decisions in your absence, all those sort of foundations are really like you got to ground them in write them uh, and obviously some of them get updated that's fine but it should be it should be part of your dna from yeah. day one we talk about that a lot in business school especially in regard to building ethical culture and how it's so hard when you're say a large enterprise company to kind of reverberate and kind of go backwards to say what the culture of the company is but you see successful large companies i think like patagonia is a famous one or tom shoes and they have all these um, values that are ingrained, but they've been there from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so really the founder ethos of those companies as well. And it's hard to unlearn or teach them, right? So I, I always say when you're hiring a person, there's going to be things you're going to, you can teach them, like could be technical skills and it could be some of the you know, more nuanced work around your work, around your space. But the unlearnable skills are usually around ethics and sort of mm-hmm. attitude and mindset. So even in our interview process, it's kind of biased that way. We want to like measure that first, and mm-hmm. then measure the technical stuff later. Well, it does come down from the top that you see that a lot with like groupthink and different scenarios, and how people really look to those around them for signals. So I think that's interesting that you know you want it to come from the top down. Um, great. Well, we're gonna do some last minute fun questions. Okay. Um, and normally I ask about industries and trends you see happening, but since you keep mentioning so many books, I'd love to know what you think the best book or blog or anything for anyone starting a company is to read. Oh, there's a lot of books. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had read a lot more in my last startup, but um, I think 
some of the ones that I, I really I think I keep going back to so there's the Ben Horowitz book which I think everybody talks mm-hmm. about I think it's a great I have it on my iPad it's like I'll bring up a, exactly yeah. I'll bring it up I'll bring up random chapters and just kind of sift through it one afternoon <laughs> if you're just tired um, I think there's a couple interesting books also which start reflecting where I think companies are going to form now um, there's an interesting book from Steve Case the, the founder of AOL and uh, fortune to meet him as well it's called the third wave mm-hmm. and it talks about sort of the companies in this new era where they will rub up against government and regulations and sort of the reality of those companies is going to be different than a pure sort of consumer tech company that can just build product and not have to think about the real world to some extent right so that mindset shift is really important for entrepreneurs i think um sense of urgency is a great book to sort of pick up uh, there's a few others that obviously then become more and more unique to the kind of space they're chasing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our case, you know, I've, I've been a fan of algorithms from day one. So, like, I love any book. There's one that I picked up recently, which is called uh, Algorithms to Live By. Like, it's about, like, how you can use them in your daily life. Like, when you're searching for a house, you should see at least 37% of the houses you want to see. Because that way you have enough data to make the right decision. I mean, there's a lot of interesting ways that, that shows the math works behind mm-hmm. these theories. But um, So I find those books interesting. Um, I do also want to say that there's a lot of good blogs out there. So yeah. you don't have to necessarily pick up a heavy book and go through it. Um, and I think the availability of information now, it should help. Obviously, it can hinder as well because you get a lot of conflicting messages. Yeah. But, you know, any founder, you take some time off, try to read, you know, maybe spend an afternoon off from the office um, and it's hard to do that in the early days because you're like 100 percent, you know, right. go 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 go. But that downtime thinking is really important because it helps you align your business. And so I guess this is usually my last question, but if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview? Oh, geez, that's a good one. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of people I am fascinated by, right? I think everybody's got a little bit of a, a fan moment for the greats like Steve Jobs and obviously mm-hmm. Elon. Um, but I think. I'm a big fan of Reid Hoffman. He's, he's a, he's a yeah. guy who people don't often see in the sort of, you know, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk kind of mindset. But I think he's a very well, carefully, you know, precision-oriented person who sort of builds a great business, thinks about the future. I think if you see behind, obviously, keeping aside LinkedIn, all the other things that he's had his involvement in mm-hmm. with Facebook and other things, I think he has a very good knack for understanding where humanity is headed and what are the kind of areas we need to be pushing or helping on. Um, so I've been a big fan of Reed. I saw him briefly speak at an event in London, actually. But, yeah, I'm in his fanboy club. I, li- I like that. It's actually uh, the first one I've heard. Recently, I've been hearing a lot of Jeff Bezos, so that's nice to hear. So that's true. I lo- Jeff's an interesting person. No, but I mean, the list is, it's, I like hearing the ones that not everyone is picking. So I've, been, I've had a few really interesting ones. Um, and finally, what's the best piece of advice you've gotten as a founder? Um... More than advice, it's sort of this diagram that somebody drew for me, and um, it's sort of people think at the start that the decision you make right now leads to either success or failure. It's like a big fork in the road. Mm-hmm. But in reality, and the more I've gone through this, I'm learning it's like a zigzag, right? So you go, it's like a pinball machine falling down. It's like you go from failure to failure <laughs> to failure to failure, and each of those points you're picking up something, and it doesn't always have to be a failure. It could be just a lesson, but that's how you get a success. So it isn't about a choice you made at the start and then you're sort of preordained into a success or failure. And I think changing that mindset is really important for people that, you know, it's it's not what you did six years ago. It's still the stuff you're doing today and the mm-hmm. stuff you're going to do tomorrow. 
It's more like the adaptability of what you take away. So yeah. just really being cognizant of the things you're learning. Keep learning. Always sort of you know keep an eye out for things you can improve. Meet people. Build mentors. Mm-hmm. Bring friends. It's it, I cannot emphasize how important it is because I think people just get trapped in the, oh my god I failed or that's it I'm never destined to be something so no I think that's great um, especially with the mentors I think that's something that people might be too proud of um, but I find that the best entrepreneurs usually are cognizant of where they have gaps that they need to fill and usually uh, a good healthy dose of introspection helps with that as well so Thank you so much for being on my show, speaking of introspection. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, it was I a lot did. of fun. A lot of learning from you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. And that's it for episode 15 of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and stay up to date with us at 52founders on Twitter so that you don't miss a thing. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.